when investors are looking at private companies, they're using public companies as a comparable. And when the public company revenue multiples come down, that thus trickles down private company multiples because investors will look at a private company and say, okay, if I invest at this price today, how much am I going to be able to sell that company for in the future? Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Okay, today I have John from SL Events. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me on. So the first question that I asked our guests it is, what problem does your product solve? So we solve the problem of helping, helping businesses grow, frankly. We provide an event management solution to facilitate every type of experience, everything from virtual events and webinars through large-scale conferences and field marketing events, all under one single platform to make it easier and less stressful for you to host events so that you can focus on creating experiences, community, and content. Great. And how did you come up with the idea? Well, it certainly didn't start the way it is today. When I started the business, it was actually sort of out of necessity. In 2014, my cousin at the age of 17 got, got diagnosed with cancer, and I wanted to do something for her. At the time, I was kind of throwing some like events slash parties on the side and realized that the way I could raise the most money would be to Hosted events. So I went down to the aquarium in Boston, Boston Mass, where I was living at the time. I put my credit card down and I rented out the whole space. And I had to sell 185 tickets to break even for that first event, basically to be able to pay my credit card bill. But ended up getting 840 people to show up for that first event. We raised $65,000 for Dana Farber Cancer Institute. But along the way, I realized that there was no good way to run the auction or the raffle. And we had a younger demographic fairly tech inclined, so I decided to build a solution. You know, we looked around, there just wasn't anything good or affordable out there, and uh, ultimately went down that path of, of building our own solution. We got great feedback from the attendees, from the organization, and at that point, I realized, okay, we can we can build business out of this, and I started doing that nights and weekends. So I uh, did that for a little while, and then the second year of the event, the event registration software that we were using, which is now a publicly traded company, failed us. On the day of the event, the waitlist functionality just broke. We had 100 people who couldn't get off the waitlist, cost the organization put the event on for probably 10 grand. And, and it just, it crystallized this belief that technology needs to be there to make life easier for event organizers, not do the opposite. So continued building for a couple of years and Things were starting to pick up steam. By 2019, we ended up closing out the year at about 375k in revenue. So still, obviously, small, but but you know, real money at that point. It was looking like we were going to be able to break a million in 2020. And by this point, we were fairly far moved away from the fundraising side of the business, much more focused on B2B events, conferences, trade shows, etc. And then, then the world shut down. And at that point, I watched everything I've been building for the past five years basically slip between my fingers, evaporated, collapsed. And that was, that was really hard. But we, we had this, we, we did have this belief that technology would play a bigger role in events in the future. And 
we had been going down this path of building for a hybrid future, fortunately. So we decided to lean all the way into that and, and start developing virtual event solution and partnering with our customers to figure out exactly what they needed. And that worked. We ended up closing out 2020 at 3.4 million in revenues. We basically 10x over the year by really learning from our customers and figuring out what's the right solution that they need and putting that in front of them. And obviously, we've, you know, we've, we've grown up quite a bit since then, um, continuing to evolve and again, continuing to learn from our customers. And today, we're focused on the full spectrum of event needs. You know, again, everything from those in-person events through every type of virtual experience. Yeah, that's great. So there's so much for us to unpack here. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's go back, and I want to definitely touch on the, on the COVID and, and how the you guys had really reacted to that. But before we, we go there, let's go back. When do you start? Uh, because right now, you have a platform that solves a lot of problems. But it looks like at that point, you chose to solve just one problem that you had. And then you start to, to expand. And, and how did you make the decision of picking just one problem? Because I see so many founders, like, now so many days so many years in your products were what your initial vision probably was, but you couldn't solve every single problem at the beginning. So how did you pick the first problem that you want to solve and, and where, how, how was the process? And, and furthermore, you couldn't solve even that first problem by yourself. Could you tell me a little bit about building the first version, uh, coming up with your engineer team and, and the process of like taking something to market? Yeah. So when you're starting something, if you set this grand ambition, grand vision, that's, that's, that's great. But you're doing that without very many customer conversations. You don't have access to that network in most cases. I mean, yeah, if you're coming out of that industry, great. But in our case, yes, I've been hosting events, but I still, I, you know, I only had a handful of conversations with other people that had this problem. So for us, it was like, okay, we're going to solve this specific problem. We're going to bring it to market. And we're going to talk to our customers and we're going to learn from there. And one thing that we did do from the very beginning, in a large part because I, I suffered this, was that, you know, in the world of events, if you, you spend three months building this experience that culminates in three hours. You don't have even 10 minutes to wait for a response. So from the very beginning, we were adamant about being there 24-7 for our customers. There was times I remember pulling over on the side of the highway to respond to messages from customers because... They need that on Saturday night when their event is live. But what that did is it led to a scenario where customers were, they knew it wasn't a bot on the other end of that chat, that it was a real person who actually cared and wanted to hear what they had to say, who was going to help them in any way they could. And that turned into customers saying, hey, you guys should think about doing this. Hey, have you tried X, Y, Z? Hey, we're having trouble with this. There's a bug here because they knew we were listening and we would, we would adapt to that. So we created this network, this community where we had the opportunity to learn from folks. And that's how we ended up broadening our offer. But again, from the perspective of what we, what we elected to tackle in the first iteration, I was bootstrapping this, didn't have any money. It was, you know, I was taking money from my day job and pumping it into building this thing nights and weekends. So we, we, you know, we couldn't, to, to use a corny expression, we couldn't go and boil the ocean. We had to figure out exactly what we were actually capable of pulling off and getting some feedback as soon as we could to figure out if this is viable. I was basically using money I would have otherwise been saving for retirement. So I was, you know, sort of betting on this idea, betting on myself. And then from the perspective of actually building it, 
the first, very first iteration for that first event uh, was through a friend, a friend of a friend. But after that, we realized that you know, we weren't going to be able to work together. Um, so I went on Upwork and I found some folks and we started kind of spinning off a WordPress site, like PHP code, in something that was, well, kind of worked. But after about <laughs> months of that, we, we uh, outscaled what that code base was going to be capable of and ended up actually bringing in another friend to help us re-architect the entire thing from scratch. And that's, frankly, that's still the, the underlying architecture and code base that we have today. I mean, I'm sure it's pretty much all been rewritten at this point. But I was not a technical person by training or by trade. I did not study computer science in school. Uh, everything I know today has been self-taught. I'm not in there writing code. Uh, you know, very occasionally I go in there and break something. But where I do get very involved is the system architecture. Because it kind of had to be, you know, I, I had that vision of where can we get to with this thing, and what's the architecture that we're going to need to be able to, to to develop to support what we're going to be at two years from now. And I don't necessarily mean like load and capacity, more just system design. So you had a WordPress solution for the WordPress solution. You brought some Upworker freelancers, but your friend helped you kind of manage those freelancers or your friend came in and built the, the, the third version after the Upwork version. How did that work? So, yeah, the, the friend came in for the third version. We moved away from the WordPress version. We moved to Java and AWS. And, um, and then we actually went back out to Upwork and found some some Java engineers who are just incredibly brilliant people that we still work with today, and, uh, and we've expanded that team to about fifty folks. Nice. So, so I find that strategy to be that strategy that Bootstrapper founders uh, is implement all the time very successfully. You do need that leader to tell you how we're going to build this, the kind of like the architect. Yeah. But once you have the architect, you can definitely go and, and find the engineers and have those engineers uh, build that to you. And so that looks like how, how it works. Your friend was your architect and then he set up, okay, guys, this is how we're going to build software. And then you went and, and, and brought the freelancers to, to keep help, helping you build the, the product. Did that friend ever become a full-time or, or he just... No, so... At this point, uh, him and I were both working full-time in other jobs. And actually, I had a, a co-founder at this time as well. And uh, because we were all working other full-time jobs, there eventually reached this point where people had different opportunities in their, in their other career. And um, after about, I guess, 12 to 18 months, uh, the individual who helped us with the initial architecture took a new role where he didn't have the option to continue with us. And, uh, and that was all good and well and set up us up for success. Uh, actually, both of these guys, I was at their weddings over the summer. Uh, you know, <laughs> so it was, uh, very good, good friends with both of them still. Um, the other one, the guy who was, you know, originally my co-founder stayed with us for a little bit longer. Him and I departed in 2019. And again, you know, just he had other opportunities that he wanted to pursue. And, uh, he came to me with that. And, and, uh, you know, I think, I think in part that like both of these people had the maturity to recognize where their heart was at. That yeah, that that really I think is critical. But it's hard to assess as well. <laughs> For sure, I, I'm sure at the time when they were helping you guys working together, you guys were having a great time. But they found something else that they want to pursue. Right, and, and and that's what it is. It's business. It's about us having the flexibility. Yeah, but keep in mind, I mean, this working together. It's not your nine to five working together, right? It's your like six to one a.m. working together, and. There was times where, like, my co-founder and I would literally alter 
who was going to go on date night on Friday versus Saturday night because the other person had to be available to handle support. Yeah. So, so let's talk more a little bit about that. So for how long you have done this as a side hustle? And, and would you recommend other founders to start as a side hustle? Because I think like that allows you to fund yourself and to make your own mistakes. Let's talk a, a little bit about that approach of building a product is starting as a side hustle. Yeah. The approach of starting as a side hustle did a couple of things for us. I mean, it allowed us to iterate without some of the pressures of, uh, of a VC breathing down our neck or an angel. It allowed us to make longer-term decisions because we had another income source, our day job. Um, but yes, I mean, we could have moved a lot faster had we been spending, you know, 90 to 100 hours instead of 50, instead of, you know, half of the amount of time that we could have been spending on it every week. And, and, and that's, that's the sort of trade-off there. But yeah, ultimately, like, that puts me in a position today where I own much more of the company than I would have if we went out and and raised a pre-seed round or an angel, angel round to sort of be able to fund like a ramen diet while we were building in the early days. When did you become full-time and did you ever raise money after that? We, uh, I became full-time in 2020, uh, like in the spring of 2020. And we raised, uh, we raised a convertible note at the beginning of this year. So we hadn't raised any money until this year. Yeah, man. Okay, nice. So to 2020, like, what a perfect time to go full-time. Yeah, <laughs> let's, well, talk, I mean, let's sort of, talk about that. <laughs> once, once it became clear that there was a very big opportunity in front of us, then it just, I mean, it was a no-brainer at that point. So when you move full-time, you guys had already figured out, like, how to pivot your product and how you'd be able to grow your company through, through the pandemic. Yeah. Well, so at this point, it's there's there's no co-founder anymore. When when the co-founder uh, departed at that point, let's see, we had one salesperson who's currently our director of sales. Who we brought on at the beginning of 2019, and then the, my co-founder departed in July or June of 2019, and then we brought on uh, a customer experience person when he departed, and she's currently our director of customer experience. Uh, both of them are incredibly incredible individuals, and we're so fortunate we wouldn't be here today without either of them. But that was the team that we had during that pivot in terms of, call it like the business team outside of engineering. I was the product person, and then and then we had we had our engineering team. Our engineering team was, you know, technically were freelancers at that point. So what kind of changes did you have to make to the product, you as the product person, and, and how did those changes uh, took you guys where you are today? Yeah, so so from a product perspective, you, you go from a product that is used for you know two minutes or five minutes during a registration process or somebody visiting that landing page to an experience where somebody is sitting there in the platform using it constantly for hours on end. Not, not just somebody, but tens of thousands of people doing that simultaneously across numerous events with a global audience. So our AWS bill went up like, I don't know, 50x in the span of three months. Um, so the product changed quite a bit. We had to rethink about really everything that we were doing in order to support the scale. But we also had to introduce this massive new concept of a virtual event into the ecosystem. Um, you know, I also want to go back. I want to add Ariane, who uh, uh, co-heads our Philippines customer experience team, had joined us about two weeks before the world shut down. So okay. it was like, okay, how do we, how do we cover, you know, these 
increased operating expenses when our revenue is not just going to zero, but it's literally going negative because of all the refunded tickets. And when the tickets get refunded, we refund our fees as well. So it's like we're actually, it's not just that we're not taking money in, we're taking money out of our bank account to pay back these, these fees. So it was a pretty hairy period. But we got some pretty early indications that we were onto something. We were kind of pre-selling what we had for events that you know, people had planned for the fall based on like Figma and Envision mock-ups of what we were, what we were building. Makes sense. So, so there's a saying that I like, and I think it applies a lot for your company here, is that crisis is going to destroy bad companies, uh, good companies is going to survive, and great companies is going to improve. It looks like you were to the point where the company actually improved. But before we improve, you went down to zero in revenue. So like, walk me through the, the process a little bit more. Like, what, what have you done as a founder? How did you keep your team calm at this point? We don't have money. What are we going to do? And, and how was the process of like, basically, that crisis is end up making you guys millions of dollars in revenue, but I'm sure that wasn't easy. And yeah, talk a little bit more about that. We had a really good camaraderie. We were all on the same page. We also, we also all had this desire to like, it wasn't just us as a business that was suffering, but all of these event organizers, all of these other businesses that were dependent on the events that they were putting together. So we had this camaraderie around, okay, we can, we can help these people. And, and we were all stuck at home anyway. So like, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing better to do than let's figure let's figure out how to solve this problem, and that's exactly what we did. That's awesome. Yeah, I guess I guess I like how you like your customers were suffering too. You now you have, you want to first help them, so because they were like at home and they couldn't run their own events, so they're losing money too. And, and probably that's who who you help first before you scale to help other people. Losing money, but also these people that were our customers our industry were, were also losing their jobs because businesses had to, I mean, if you, you go back and look at the S&P 500 in March and April and May of 2020, before we had the massive tech boom, things got really nasty. And there was a lot of layoffs going on and companies were like, okay, we're not going to be running events. We don't need this event personnel on our team. And what we helped to do was show companies that, yeah, you do need these event people on your team. And you know what? They're actually going to do, you know, I don't want to say more, but like they have a very, very relevant job. And today, yes, they're doing more. And frankly, it's, you know, part of our, part of our mantra today is, okay, we want to, we want to help you get an extra 15 minutes of sleep the night before you're back. Events are stressful. But event folks, they've had this programming, these in-person events that they've been expected to pull off for years. But now on top of that, they have all of these virtual experiences that are thrown into the mix. So their workload has essentially doubled and it's taking longer for their team size to come back to the size it was, but frankly, it needs to be larger because there's even more work on their plate. And how was the, the transition for these people? I guess maybe they will need some training too, because if I'm always only doing in-person event, it's, it's very different. Uh, like for all my own company, we, we used to run a two days workshop in person. I would fly people to Utah, it was a two day workshop. That won't fly in the internet. You know, like we had to do two hours meetings over two weeks and that was one change that we done. So like what changes that have, has to happen, not only in the mentality, but in these people running the event and how did you guys help with that? Yeah, so there was a lot that went into it. And, you know, it's not just the technology. Even, you know, you and I are hitting, sitting here with our, our fancy microphones and our, our lighting and everything else, things that I know I didn't have in 2019. 
So the education span from hardware to backdrops and your room set up to make you know, things look professional to how do you actually use this technology and how do you adjust your event design? Event design, I mean, there's designations around it. There's, there's uh, majors in, in colleges based around it. There's a lot of psychology that goes into event design. And yes, some people were starting to pioneer virtual events pre-pandemic, but we were all sort of starting from scratch and rethinking it. Fortunately, at the same time, the technology was doing 10 years of innovation in a year, but we had to, we had to train everybody on all the best practices that we were learning because we had access to so many of these events. And a couple of the things that we did were we, we did a um, uh, twice a week webinar training new event organizers how to use the platform, speakers how to present on the platform, exhibitors on how to generate leads within the platform. And then we put a bunch of other material and content out there that people could use on, on their own to further educate and understand how to get the most impact out of these event experiences that they were either participating in or, or running. I think that's something that's very important for any SaaS founder to realize. It's not just building a product, but teach people how to use your product. How can you re-leverage and be the hero of your organization? And it's pretty cool everything that you guys were doing about. So still talking a little bit about the pandemic, a lot of tech companies grew. Uh, and if we look at the public market, um, now a lot of them are actually going down. Like we look at Teledoc, Peloton, Zoom, Shopify. Their stocks are down because they grew so much to the pandemic because they were solving a huge problem. And now they're like going down. How does that work in, in your private company and, and why it is like it has been a transition now that the world is going back to normal? Of course, you grew so much, 2020, $3 million in revenue, but now how, how is that affecting you? Yeah, so I'll hit on that, but I want to go back to one other point that you had asked around uh, how to set up our event organizers for success. So one of the other things that I, you know, I mentioned that there were these layoffs taking place within the event sector. So one of the other things that we did is we offered professional services to our event organizers. So if they wanted somebody on our staff to be there and be present during their event, they could get that from us. And we would basically act as an extension of their team. And that was incredibly powerful because again, ensured that their event was successful. Every one of their stakeholders, their attendees, their speakers, their exhibitors were potential customer or customers of ours. Word of mouth and, and attendees at events on our platform are our biggest referral source, or sorry, our biggest lead source. And then, the other thing is that it led to us getting tons of product feedback because we were basically using our own product multiple times per day with each of these customer experience people that were in there. I mean, we would have days where we would have 20 people on our team uh, running, running support for different events in real time and being there live within those events. We just got so much feedback from that. To your, to your other question around what's going on in the public market. So, and obviously, there's a couple of things. The two biggest factors are uh, growth rates have slowed significantly or stalled, and valuations are based on revenue multiples. Revenue multiples are often based on future growth rates. The other thing is rising rates, right? So there's some externalities, rising interest rates. There's some externalities that that uh, should be considered there. The way that impacts the private companies, though, is that when investors are looking at private companies, they're using public companies as a comparable, as a comp. And when the public company revenue multiples come down, that thus trickles down to private company multiples because investors will look at a private company and say, okay, if I invest at this price today, how much am I going to be able to sell that company for in the future? If it gets to a, you know, a series C, D, E, 
for an IPO. So uh, the way that impacts us today, I mean, the fundraising environment is definitely different. We're not actively pursuing fundraising today. We as a business, and I think because we bootstrapped so long, have just been, you know, we're, we're, we're a very capital efficient company. Uh, we're not one of the companies that are out there, you know, spending crazy amounts of money and hiring giant, uh, you know, artists to come play concerts. Although that would be fun, it's uh, it's ultimately not the thing that's going to make the biggest impact for for the growth of the business or our customers. How about your growth rate? Did your growth rate get get impacted? Because you grew a lot in 2020. H- how is the growth rate now in the post pandemic? It's something a little bit more. Yeah, the growth rate is definitely impacted by by uh, the changes. Uh, I would say the the economic environment is a factor, but the bigger factor is that the return to in person for us means that the revenue that we generate from each attendee is lower than it is with virtual. Because in the world of virtual, we are the entire platform, the entire experience, basically the venue. And in the world of in-person, yes, we're facilitating registration, a mobile app for attendees on site, lead capture for exhibitors, badge printing, all of that great stuff. But we're not the entire experience. We're not staring at our tech all day like when they're in a virtual experience. Makes sense. So, so let's go back. I really like what you talk about bringing the professional services in. Thank you for bringing that over. So how is that still in place today? Because I feel like so many times there's that thing where we want people to just use our products, be left alone, don't talk to us. And you kind of flip that. You're like, let me do it with you. Let me do kind of like a consulting approach and do this together. And do you think that really made a huge difference on how much you guys grew. Of course, you talk about learning about more about your product, but I feel like that's a strategy that's not used enough in SaaS. So like, let's going, sorry, I'm going all over the place, but I think there's a lot of gold here. No, I mean, this is, this is a very important topic to us. So we made the decision that we wanted to invest in customer experience, that we weren't going to invest in any mechanism of growth that was going to lead to a decrease in the customer experience. And that also factored into some of our fundraising decisions. So that did mean that we invested more heavily in customer experience than marketing. And for us, we're very happy that we made the decision because it, again, means that we create better experiences for our direct customer being the event organizer, but also all of our secondary customers being our customers' customers and the other stakeholders that are involved. There's a... There's a gentleman from HubSpot, his name's Scott Brinker, and he posts some really interesting content, particularly about the marketing tech space. And he recently posted something talking about how we're now in the second era of MarTech. And the, one of the ways that he defines that second era is the concept of software and services, as opposed to software as a service. And if you think about the way that B2B companies operate today, their tech stacks are so deep and software is so sophisticated and integrated that it's quite onerous to really learn and execute to the full potential of many applications where technology providers can come in and, and provide resources to maximize the output, the ROI, the benefit of their platform. They're going to lead to more expansion revenue, higher retention rates, reducing churn all the things that you want when you're looking at those SaaS metrics. That's really our approach to this. I mean, it's a win for our customers. It's a win for us. And frankly, it generates revenue. Yes, for sure. I saw his post too, and I was like, oh, this is genius. Because at the end of the day, churn is, is such a killer for SaaS companies. And, and you're, you're going to make sure 
churn gets reduced so much if you actually teach people in making sure they are getting a return from your product. But looks like you were doing that before his post because when I saw his post, I was like, oh man, it is, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> we, we've been doing that since, since we launched. It was a good validation. It actually made us feel like we were a little bit ahead of, of the curve and that there was a growing realization of the importance of that, which is good for us as a consumer of other technology products. But uh, that in the sense that, you know, for a long time, that was a significant differentiator for us. It still is because our, our support blows everyone else out of the water, but it's, yeah, it's, people are catching up. Looking at your site to stay a little bit on the topic, it looks like you have a very simple pricing strategy. Uh, can we chat a little bit about how you, how you got to that pricing strategy, going through all those changes and, and how that affect your growth and, and bringing those customers and even do, we, do you charge more for the uh, SaaS and the service, software and service, or is it kind of like all-inclusive in that pricing? Can you yeah. kind of like chat about pricing here? So our pricing, we, we break it into two different buckets. We have one-off event pricing, and then we have annual subscriptions. And then we charge, it's, it's a hybrid pricing model where we charge an annual platform fee, which varies depending on the, the feature level. And then we, we charge a usage component. So how many attendees do you have in the event? One thing that differs us from some of the other platforms out there, we only charge when people who actually show up to your event. Some of the other platforms charge for every registrant, and then they do things that drive registrants to your page, but they're not, you know, they might not be people you actually care about, but you're paying for them anyway. Uh, as for the professional services side of things, so depending on the tier, we include a certain level of professional services, being dedicated resources, dedicated people during, during your event, but then we also offer the option to purchase at an hourly rate, people to be available during your event as well. Nice. And, and how did the pricing strategy evolve and develop over the, the many years that you're running the company? Uh, so it, it developed most significantly when we moved from fully in-person to fully virtual events. But we've done numerous iterations since then as, well, we've sort of learned how people use the platform, what our cost structure is, what's the value we provide, the way that people are thinking about their event programming. And by that, I mean this meshing of in-person and virtual experiences over the course of the year, as opposed to just thinking about, hey, I'm hosting this one particular event. Now, we certainly have customers who are coming in because they have an annual event and they need a solution for that. We also have customers that come in because they have an event that they need a solution for. We execute on that event, and then we convert them into an annual subscription because We've lowered the barrier to entry to get them in the door, and then we've proven that we're reliable and that we're going to deliver and that we've got the power and flexibility that they need. That, that's great. I love your pricing strategy. So tell me a little bit about the first oh shit moment that comes to your mind in the years that you have been working in this, in this business. You're like, what was kind of like the first moment? The first oh shit moment was the first paid customer we had when the technology failed. Because again, Live events are, this was eight years ago, seven years ago. Live events are, you don't get a second chance. The next big one was when Facebook canceled their FA conference in, I think it was like February of, no, it was early March of, uh, of 2020. And then I realized we were going to start to see a lot of event cancellations. And at that point, this goes back to one of your earlier questions around bootstrapping versus raising capital, when you're put in a position where you only have, well, you have two options. 
you fold the business or you figure it out. We were put in that position and I, there was folding. Folding wasn't an option. So we had to figure something out and we took a gamble. We took a bigger bet. It was the right choice. So, so when, when Facebook canceled that event, you're like, if you don't do something right now, we're going to be out of business. You, you just visualize the future over there. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big signal of, of event cancellations to come. And how long did it take you to turn the business around? Like, to, okay, we, we're in the blue again. Because as a bootstrap founder, there's only so much they can stay in the red for. Yeah. So it was about two months before we started generating revenue again. But we were starting to get commitments from customers uh, in advance. They, you know, as we were starting to roll product out the door, we were selling it as we did that. So it was a very short window. And we, we you know, we, we made some deals with, employees and contractors around like we need to work together on this like let's figure out a way where there's going to be some sort of compensation reduction for a short period of time hopefully a short period of time and we're going to make it up to you and as soon as we could we made it up to them is it fair to say that that moment is the moment that actually made your company be the size that it is today because like you haven't even left your job yet um by the when that well we started right you only left your job later yeah, no, that's completely fair. So let's say you could go back in time to 2015 and meet yourself from 2015. What do you tell yourself? Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> About your business, though. <laughs> Take bigger bets and uh, really think about how to split time, my time between product and go to market. That's an everyday challenge. I love the product side of things. I didn't love the go-to-market side of things before. I liked selling. I didn't like marketing. I'm starting to really like marketing. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm over the hump of really liking marketing now, which is very annoying for our marketing team, but probably relieving for our product team since I'm, I'm giving them a little more slack now. So would you tell them, though, would you tell yourself, uh, quit your job? Uh, earlier or no? You think that was the right time? No, I think that was the right time. I mean, unless I was going to quit earlier and go raise money because we felt like we had product market fit, maybe. Okay. So now let's go back to 2019. Sorry, 20. When you start yeah. this journey uh, full time. So what will you tell yourself at the start of 2020? Maybe w when you had that oh shit moment, like, so you just realized... Facebook canceled the conference, and then you, you're going there to meet yourself at that day to tell you something, what you're going to tell yourself. I probably would have invested in operations a little bit sooner in hindsight. It's easy to say that in hindsight because you're like, okay, had I invested in operations sooner, we would have better data systems today, or we'd be spending less time doing data hygiene today. But at the same time, every investment, especially for bootstrap companies, is a trade-off. And you don't know what the future unholds. You don't know how long anything's going to last. I mean, frankly, anything I say is with the, the pretense that I know, okay, uh, the world is starting to going to return to in-person, return to some sense of normalcy by this date. There's no context or information I had around that. So I don't think that there's anything I, I could tell myself that isn't, it's, it's it, you know, I think I made the decisions that, Based on the information I had at the time, I probably could have made bigger gambles, bigger bets. You made the best decision you could with the information you had. 
And one question I like to ask for every founder that comes on the show, what book do you recommend for other SaaS founders? What books like do you think you read that really change or help you improve a lot as a founder? There's a book I read by Jocko Willink that I really liked. I'm a big I'm a big podcast person more than a book person, but the name of that book was Extreme Ownership. I saw Jocko speak at an event in Boston a couple of years ago and uh, had to buy the book. And I've read it twice. Nice. Yeah, that's a great book. You say a big podcast person. So then what podcasts do you recommend for uh, SaaS founders? Besides this great one that they're listening right now. For SaaS founders, early stage, Nathan Lacka's podcast. I actually spoke at his event in Austin a couple of weeks ago. For later stage founders, Saster. Those two are like staples. For sure, yeah. So final question for you. Thank you very much for coming here. But where is the company headed now? Like, how does the future look like for a company? You told us a little bit about the origin story, how you guys got here. That was about the future. Yeah, so we are fully committed to making life easier for event organizers and helping them to centralize every aspect of the experiences that they're creating for their attendees and every stakeholder. In terms of where we're, we're headed from that perspective, it's really hits down on creating better experiences. Everything that we can do to to make life easier, to help people be more engaged, more effective. Yeah, that's great. So thank you very much for sharing. I love your story. Love how you, you for years were there working uh, and building this product, and then something changed in the world that wasn't great. But for you guys, had the opportunity to to get the to go and, and build this amazing company. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.